Amen and amen. If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm 119. We are in the third letter of the alphabet, Gimel, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Delet, Chevav, Zion, Chet. And so it goes, the Hebrew alphabet, and we are in uh, verse 17 tonight. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, the accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the flavor of tonight's psalm is that of a man under the gun, a man under pressure. The psalmist tells us he doesn't feel at home in the world. He, he calls himself a sojourner, an alien, an immigrant in this world. He lives, it, it seems, with the world's scorn and contempt ringing in his ears. He says in verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt. If that were bad and not bad enough, his enemies aren't his peers. They're princes, the great men of the world, sit and plot against him. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. He feels homesick for heaven. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And feeling a little bedraggled, I think, he turns to God. Where else can he turn? God alone has the words of everlasting life. As the psalmist turns to God, he, he gives us a wonderful example as to how to endure hard times, times of tribulation, when you feel alone in the world, and maybe people above you, people of influence, are working against your best interests. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe at work, there's a, a manager or boss who hates you, and hates you specifically because of Christ, and they're out to get you. If you haven't been that way recently, don't hold your breath. You'll be that way soon. Maybe it's at school you find friends jab at you because of your Christian faith. They mock you because of your confidence in the man upstairs, they say, and you feel it's, it's hard. Or maybe just those simple times in life when you feel like a little person, a pawn on the chessboard, and the big dogs who have influence, who have say, are working behind the scenes against you. It's painful frightening. 
You feel insecure. You feel as if you're at the mercy of other people bigger than you. What do you do? How do you respond? Well, the psalmist gives us a wonderful um, series of counsels this evening. First of all, he tells us to prioritize piety and not prosperity. Prioritize piety and not prosperity. We see that in the opening verse of the stanza. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Now, the Hebrew behind deal bountifully is the Hebrew word gemol, which literally means to load someone with benefits. Imagine a penniless orphan standing outside the toy store, maybe Harrods in London, at Christmas time, looking longingly in the window in his rags. And this rich passerby sees him, takes pity on him, and takes him and takes the orphan's cold hand in his warm fist and leads him inside. And the young lad goes in only with a promise and a hope and nothing else to his name. But he comes out decked in new clothes with his arms um, laden with presents wrapped in gold and silver and navy wrapping. So many presents he can barely carry them out of the store. That's the idea behind the word deal bountifully. Load me with benefits. Now remember, this man's under the gun. He's under pressure. So you can understand, he comes before God, and he says, Lord, load me with benefits. No surprise there. He wants God to bless him. But what might surprise you is the particular nature of the blessings for which he asks. I mean, picture yourself, if you had a genie in the lamp moment where God appears before you, and I know God doesn't do this, but bear with me, but He appears before you and says, what is your bidding? What would you like me to give you? Name one thing, as high as heaven, as deep as hell, anything you want. Like He asked, like He, like he offered, um, watch His face in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz. Ask me anything. What could I give you? any problem I can fix, any question I can answer, any need I can supply. What would you ask God for? The sky's the limit. You can imagine the psalmist asking for salvation, asking for a well-armed bodyguard, or a new GPS location in a, in a gated village, moat, drawbridge, armed security at the gates, and a new house. You could well understand him asking for that kind of earthly prosperity. Lord, I want salvation from all my problems. But that's not what the psalmist asked for. He doesn't ask for salvation. He actually asks for sanctification. He doesn't ask for a better life. He asks, if you like, for a better heart. Deal bountifully with your servant. Load me with benefits that I may live and keep your word. I want, I, want to, I want a better heart, O God, that I might live and spend my life energy serving you. Whatever you need this evening, whatever God could do for you, I put it to you, this is the one thing you want to ask God for. It's like Samson. God says, what do you want, Samson? And God says, and Samson says, Lord, I want wisdom. Give me an understanding heart. 
He could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for prosperity. But he asked for his soul. And God grants him everything, of course. Now, you want to be careful. You, you don't want to come and say, Lord, give me sanctification. But really, I'm asking for that because I want everything else as well. <laughs> it's kind of the means to the end. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful picture of our heart. What, what, do, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said to the blind man? Do you want to be made well? And the psalmist says, Lord, I want to be made holy. That's your prayer this evening. It's the greatest thing you can ever ask from God. And it's the one thing He's certain to give you. Prioritize piety, not prosperity. Always remember that. When you're under the gun and men are against you, often God puts you in those situations to sift your heart and to help you get your priorities straight. When you find yourself in that position, ask for piety, not just prosperity. It's always the healthiest and best thing to ask from your heavenly Father. Secondly, plead for spiritual, not worldly, wisdom. To even want to pray, verse 17, you need a new way of looking at everything. And you won't find that by looking at your navel or by looking at your neighbor. You'll find that by looking into Scripture. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Here's a man who knows himself. Do you know yourself? What's this tell you? Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things out of your law. What's that tell you about the psalmist? What's he telling you here about his natural propensity towards God? He tends to read the Bible with his eyes wide shut. He's like me when I would go to my dad and ask him for counsel when I was young. And my dad always said this. It really used to bug me, but it was so wise. Dad, Neil, what do you want me to say? What I think you want to hear or what I really think? And I, would knew, I knew when he said that, I would think, oh, no. Because <laughs> I knew what I wanted to hear and what he really thought couldn't be more different. But my dad was generally right. In fact, on earthly things, I've never known him to be wrong. So it is with us, isn't it? We go to Christ. What we want really is a 12-step program to get from where I am to where I want to be. Lord, I know you love me, and I hope you've got a wonderful plan for my life. No, actually, I've got a wonderful plan for my life, and I want you to make it happen, right? Um, I, want a, I want a better marriage, a, a better relationship with my kids, better life, more prosperous living um, expenses, whatever, better friendships. But the psalmist is conscious that when he approaches the Bible, he needs someone to open his eyes to see the real riches hidden there. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. The word wonderful things in the Bible describes things so good only God could do them. So good only God could show them glorious things. When I was a lad, there was a 
folk song in Northern Ireland called The Old Man. It was, it's, it's quite sentimental, but it was dear to me, and it describes a, a young lad or an older boy, I suppose now, an older man, walking away from his father's funeral. And he's reminiscing about his life with his father. And it says, The tears have all been shed now. We've said our last goodbyes. His soul's been blessed. He's laid to rest. And it's now I feel alone. He was more than just a father, a teacher, my best friend. And he can still be heard in the tunes we shared when we play them on our own. As a boy, he'd take me walking by mountain, field, and stream. And he showed me things not known to kings, but secret between him and me, like the colors of the pheasant as he rises in the dawn, and how to fish and make a wish beside the holly tree. Well, maybe not the last bit, but you see the father taking his son out in the morning and showing him the pheasant in the dawn, rising and strutting his stuff in the forest, and the sun dancing on the pheasant's wings as he unfurls them. And that beautiful moment of father-son intimacy as the father shares his, his wisdom with his son. That's the kind of relationship the psalmist longs to have with God. Show me wonderful things in your law, the kind of things only you could know, the kind of things, Lord, only you could show me. Here's a man who knows himself. I can't get here from there. I need your help, O God. If you pray one thing when you open your Bible in the morning, pray that. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. You'll never outgrow that prayer. Doesn't matter how much you know, how learned you become, how wise you are. There's a prayer that God has given you because it's a prayer God means to answer. Here's a man also who knows what he needs. Sorry, he knows where he belongs. Sorry, he knows where he belongs. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. He said to God, I don't belong down here, God. I feel like an illegal alien walking about on this planet. I'm made for another world, O Lord. He longs for heaven. Psalm 84 speaks about the righteous man, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. If ever you've been in a foreign country for any length of time, you'll know what that verse means. It means in his heart are all the ways back home. He wants to go home again. Blessed is the man in whose heart are are the ways to Zion, the psalmist says. And the Christian heart, the true Christian heart, no matter whether he's a pauper or a prince in this world, he wants to go home and be with God. He doesn't belong here. It's not his, 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 his happy place. His happy place is above. He wants to be with God again. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain, Paul said. I'm made for another world. And yet the psalmist instinctively knows that he doesn't deserve to live in that world. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Why would you pray that? Because you know that's what you deserve. You need God to open your eyes. But you deserve that God would shut them fast shut so you'd never see truth again as long as you lived. He knows it would be quite just for God to abandon him, to throw him out, and to cut all the lines of communication from heaven to earth, and to leave him as an orphan in the darkness. He says, Lord, 
I am a sojourner in the earth. Hide not your commandment from me. Why does God give you prayers like that? Because He knows there'll be times that you need them, and He knows that there's always a moment He'll answer them. God doesn't intend to hide His law from you, even though you deserve that. Come to Him with Samuel's prayer, Lord, speak, for Thy servant is listening, and you'll never go away empty. Here's a man, remember the heading now, plead for spiritual, not worldly wisdom. Here's a man who knows himself. Here's a man who knows where he belongs. Here's a man who knows what he needs. My soul is consumed. Literally, my soul is crushed with longing for your rules. Now, that's not a great translation. Um, rules here is mishpat in the Hebrew, which means judgments. And some of your other translations might have that word judgments rather than rules. And how can I explain it? Okay, imagine George Washington was still alive somewhere on this planet, right? And you could imagine perhaps that half or maybe even more than half of the American population might petition the old man, Mr. Washington, please. Have mercy on us. America is not what it once was, and we have this guy in the White House who seems to shake the hands of people who when they're not, there's no one there to shake the hands with him. He doesn't know that his left and his right, and it's, it's really it's becoming a bit of a disastrous um, moment, and the, the country's veering off in a bad direction, and the Republicans and the Democrats are just as bad as one another. They're corrupt and confused and foolish. And we don't know where to turn. America was so much better when you were here. Would you consider coming back again and being your, our president? My soul is crushed with longing for the time when you were in charge. That's the idea. Mishpat, judgments. It's not so much the rules like the nitty-gritty, do this, don't do that. It's more, it's, it's, the, it's the, the leadership dictates of someone who's in charge and someone who knows just what to do. Someone who makes things happen and makes things move in the right direction. It's really the Old Testament echo of the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. That's what David is praying for here. My soul is crushed with longing for your rules. I wish your rule was felt here and experienced here, as it one day will be in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what's behind that word mishpat, or judgments in most of your translations, um, but it's rules here in the ESV. Here's a man then who, who pleads for spiritual, not worldly wisdom. Is that even on your radar screen? Are you the kind of person that Jim describes so often and so well, as Jim can sum things up so neatly in a little bundle of wisdom, that you live as if nature's the whole show? You're like a cow that always looks down at the grass and never looks up to heaven. And the psalmist is, 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 is he's trying to open your eyes and mine to a whole new way of looking at life, the universe, and everything. There are two stories to the psalmist's world. Down here, yes, but up there. And what a difference it makes. Is your world of one story or two? And of course, 
the, the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says. One of his key phrases in Ephesians, heavenly places isn't so much up there. It's round about us. It's a, it's a, it's a dimension beneath, behind, and underneath this current world. It's real here and now. It's the realm where the angels work and the demons work, the heavenly realms. It's not just up there. It's everywhere. Another dimension down here that your soul can connect to. As John Stott says so beautifully in his book on preaching, he calls it between two worlds. The Christian lives between two worlds. This world where our feet walk and the other world that's closer than our skin, the heavenly realm where Christ is and where God is and where um, their rule is felt and their presence is seen and their glory is appreciated. So, how do you deal with wicked people who are out against you? Prioritize piety, not prosperity, and plead for spiritual, not worldly wisdom. Thirdly, picture the nature and end of impious people or impious people, depending on how you pronounce that, um, impious, ungodly people. They may be princes now. They may be big men now or big women now. You seem to have all of the control and all of the influence. They may, they may look like fat, happy turkeys on the farm at the beginning of November. But don't forget, Thanksgiving's coming. You rebuke the proud, the insolent ones, the accursed ones, who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. How these men and women are regarded on earth and how they are regarded in heaven could not be more different. Don't answer that. On earth, they're princes, and they rejoice in a little brief strut of a little brief authority. But in heaven, they live under, and they will die under, the rebuke of Almighty God. Now, for these people, the tragedy cannot be overstated, for they have wandered. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. You can't wander unless you once used to obey. You can't wander from God's commandments unless you once walked in them. How simple the act, wandering carelessly away from God and His Word. Are you doing that this evening? Are you wandering from God's commandments? Or perhaps you say, where are you wandering from God's commandments? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect and obey and submit to your husbands. Children, honor your parents, or your mother and father, that your days may be long on the earth. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And the list goes on and on and on. We constantly wander from God's commandments. What does it say about us when we wander from God's commandments? The Hebrew's word describes our nature, our character. We are zedim, which means insolent or prideful ones. The Hebrew word is derived from the word to boil. 
It describes a tumult of lust, covetousness, greed, anger, malice, bitterness, boiling in the heart of these people. What pride does it take for a creature to defy its Creator? In the theological wordbook of the Old Testament, it says this word, zedim, is frequently used to refer to three specific acts of pride. First of all is presumption. Because a proud person is proud, sorry, because a person is proud, he presumes too much and forgets that he's a person under authority. We presume too much. Presume is a close cousin of assume, and you know what happens when you assume. I'll ask your parents later. First is presumption. The second is rebellion or disobedience. Because the proud person, because the person is proud, he asserts his own will to the point of rebelling against one in authority over him. The Israelites did this when they chose to fight the Canaanites, even though God told them not to do so. Remember in Deuteronomy 1.43, God said, So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord, and presumptuously, Zedim, went up to the hill country. Presumption. The third aspect of pride, Zedim, is closely related to the second, but carries the additional element of willful decision-making a person who willfully decides to disobey God. It's used of the, a person murdering someone by malice of forethought. You know, you can go out to the field with an axe, and you're swinging at the axe, uh, with the axe, and the head flies off and strikes Jimmy in the head, and he's dead. He didn't mean to do it. Still, a tragedy, but at least he didn't mean to do it. It's altogether different, though, if you actually loosen the axe first, hoping the axe head would fly off and kill Jimmy. And the Bible's word for that is zedim, if a man willfully acts, attacks another person by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. It describes the madness in our souls when we deliberately do that which is wrong. When was the last time you did something that you knew was wrong, but didn't care, and did it anyway? It's the madness of this verse. And the psalmist says, about your nature, you're prideful when you do that, when I do that. And it talks also about your destiny. Such a lifestyle leads to cursedness. More about that later. You don't want to continue down that road, the psalmist is saying. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who wander away from your commandments. How are you to avoid such folly? The last point. Place all your joy in God and His Word. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors, verse 24. Your testimonies, your legal, authoritative testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Here's a man who's obviously been thinking about Psalm 1, the gateway to the Psalms. 
I've said this before, but isn't it amazing that the Psalms begin not with Psalm 150, praise Him on the trumpet, the timbrel and lyre, which you'd think, you'd think you're going to bring, the, you're going to bring you know, the, this, glorious, this, this glorious arch through which you walk into the hymn book of the Bible. And you'd expect it to be a psalm of triumphant praise, Psalm 150, Psalm 145, Psalm 95 maybe, Psalm 100, the old hundredth. But it's not Psalm 1. Why does it begin with Psalm 1? Because before you begin to worship God, you have to ask yourself, am I a person who's in the right spot, the right place in my heart to even begin to worship God? And so the psalmist says, are you listening to the right counselors? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel, the words that seem wise of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. And the verbs carry the action. He's, he's walking, he's standing, he's sitting. Walks not in the counsel, stands not in the way, sits not in the seat. He's getting progressively bogged down and immobile in sin as he walks away from God. And the scoffer, you sit in the, in the ancient times. We stand to teach. In the Bible, they sat to teach. When you sit in the seat of the scoffers, you're teaching and laughing at, the, at God and His Word. You think the way to heaven looks stupid, and the way to hell looks wonderful. You're in a bad spot. And it all begins by listening to the wrong counsel. But the psalmist says his delight is not that way. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Psalm 1 presents two different lifestyles, a contrast, and the first and last word of the psalm carry the contrast, blessed and perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Blessed is the first word in the English and the Hebrew, and perish is the last word in the English and the Hebrew. The contrast, two men, two ways, two plants, a tree planted by streams of water, fruitful, verdant, living. Plant number one, chaff, plant number two, that which is rootless, lifeless, weightless, and worthless. And which plant you're becoming, and you're becoming one or the other of the two plants, depends upon your relationship to God and His Word. And the psalmist says, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What's, what's the, what is, how should you respond when your life is miserable because the great men in life, the great women in life stand against you? And your life is miserable. What do you do? You remember that your joy is in another world. Your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. You place your delight in God. You can't lose it. There's no inflation in heaven. Well, only the good kind. There's no depression in heaven where your investments tank. 
The heavenly S&P 500 never crashes. It's always on the up. And yet you and I are constantly surrounded by the world's PR men who are very skilled at making the darkness look bright and sin taste sweet. Every television program you watch, every show presents to you a bill of goods, this way to life. And they're skilled. As Thomas Brooks said about the devil, they're skilled like a fisherman at presenting the bait and hiding the hook. And they go, here, fishies, here, fishies. And you and I, if we don't remember to close our ears, like Ulysses and his men stopping up their ears, actually Ulysses was tied to the mast, but the siren call of this world will pull us away. We'll be hooked and landed before you even know what a worm is. And the answer is, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. It's Psalm 37. I encourage you to go back later and read Psalm 37. I'll not read it all to you now. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on faithfulness, literally in the Hebrew. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not, it leads only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the weak will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus loves Psalm 37. The meek shall inherit the earth. Never confuse meekness and weakness. Meekness requires enormous strength. It's the idea of a man who knows how to use a sword, but has the self-control to keep it in the scabbard. He's not weak. It takes enormous strength. Much easier to lop off the head of your enemy. Christ on the cross, what a display of weakness was a meekness as he hangs there on the cross. He could have vaporized. Remember whenever the, all the, the Roman or the guards come into the garden to arrest him? Judas is there and the high priest and so forth, and they march up, and Jesus turns, and he, he approaches them. Who are you looking for? You sort of wonder who's in charge. <laughs> and they go, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And I don't know what happened, but something happened. And they drew back and fell on the ground. He just, he just let a little bit of his, his weightiness be felt, and they fell back on the ground. It wasn't a Benny, Benny Hinn con- conference. But they fell back on the ground. They're in the presence of Jesus Christ. He could have vaporized them on the cross with a thought. But he restrained himself because he loved you and was determined to bring you to glory. And so he said no to his right to vaporize the wicked, and he suffered, and he bled, and he died. What a display of omnipotent 
meekness of your Savior. Never ever think meekness is weakness. Look at Psalm 37 when you get home. It's a great place to go when men look big and God seems small. As is always the case, we'll end here. Always remember when you read the Psalms, they're Christ's hymn book before they're your hymn book. Ask yourself, how would Jesus have sung this? Imagine Jesus growing up in the synagogue and reading this psalm, this particular paragraph, as a little boy growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. That's the most amazing verse in all the Bible. He grew in stature. I get that much. He was a baby, and then he was a man. But he also grew in wisdom. And he grew in wisdom by reading words like these. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things. As Christ in his human nature needed the help of the Holy Spirit to grow him in wisdom. Your Spirit has anointed me, he said, to preach your word. He was as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as I am in preaching God's word. He goes to a place in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Was it Nazareth? Wasn't it Nazareth? He went to Nazareth and he preached there, and he could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. He could do no miracles. The, the early scribes changed that to he did no miracles there because they couldn't have the Bible say Jesus could do no miracles, but the best text said he could do no miracles there. He was a man in human nature. And when the Spirit of God was withdrawn by God the Father through God the Son, Christ in the human nature was unable to do many miracles because of their unbelief. He needed the help of God to teach him. I'm a sojourner on the earth. This, is, this world is not my home. Hide not your commandments from me. And yet those words pointed a dark echo in Christ's mind that one day God would do more than hide his commandments from Jesus. God would hide himself from Jesus. And his son would be left alone as the sin of the world, losing all consciousness, consciousness of himself as the son of God. He felt himself only to be sin and abandoned as sin to the wrath of his father. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, not my father, my father. He no longer saw himself as son. He saw himself only as sin. You rebuke the insolent, the accursed ones. As Christ read those words as a young man growing up, he saw what you and I deserve, and he saw what he would receive. He'd be cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, but Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You can see Jesus coming in one day, maybe from out, out, having his quiet time outside and coming in with a heavy heart. And Mary said, Son, you're a boy of sorrows today. Why so sad, my son? And his heart had been thinking in this verse in the day when his father would curse him in order that he might bless you. Take away from me scorn and contempt. His whole life coming to his own, his own not receiving him, his brothers mocking him, making fun of him. Herod and other great men, Pilate, 
plotting against him. Where did Christ find relief? Your servant will meditate on your statutes. For your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. You can imagine Jesus saying to himself, this is why I must keep your testimonies, Father, because my people won't. My people can't. It all hangs on me as the new Adam. I must keep my, your testimonies so my people can sing these words without shame. How do you sing, answer me, O God, according to my righteousness? How can you sing that in the Psalms and not blush, Christian? Because your elder brother has kept those words for you and in you. And your righteousness is not your own. It's Christ's righteousness. And we sing those words, and we come, and we almost shudder. The Savior, who can say, who can sing the words, my sins are more in number than the hairs of my head, not because he had any sins of his own, but he had all of your sins given to him as his very own. The same Savior stands beside you as you sing those words. You rebuke, uh, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. And you say to yourself, I can't sing that. And Jesus comes alongside you, puts his arm on you and says, oh, yes, you can. We can sing those words together, you and me. I have kept them for you, and you have kept them in me. What a delightful thing it is to remember this book of Psalms. They belong to Jesus ever before they belong to you and me. And we sing them best when we sing them to Christ and sing them through Christ to the Father. Let's pray. Father, in heaven, we thank you, O God, for your word. What a Savior we have, O God. We want to see more of Him. We want to know more of Him. We want to feel more of Him. We want to give, our, give more of ourselves to Him and for Him. Not to earn Your love, O God, but because He gave Himself for us. And if God the Son will give Himself for us, nothing less will do than for us to give ourselves to Him. Help us do that, O God, that your Son may see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied in this church until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen.